Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of July 2023 and this is episode 307. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr Jenny McLeod, Senior Lecturer in 20th Century History at the University of Hull. I talked to Jenny about the 1922 Chanak Crisis and the actions of Prime Minister Lloyd George, who tried to solve the crisis with reference to the Great War. Jenny spoke to me from her office in Hull. It is the 10th of July, 2023, and this is episode 308. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talked to historian, teacher and researcher Caroline Tarod about her research into state teachers from Victoria in Australia during the First World War. She spoke to me from her office in Victoria, Australia. So Jenny, welcome to the podcast. May you start by telling us about how you became interested in the Great War? Well, um, it's really hard to pinpoint I got interested in, in the Great War, um, but certainly I've always been more interested in uh, modern history. And I had an amazing uh, modern British history lecturer when I was an undergraduate, um, Dr. John Brown. Loved his lectures, but he wasn't anything particularly to do with the First World War. But by the time I finished my degree, I was dead set on studying it. And I was particularly interested on in how um, how it was remembered or what happened afterwards, its impact afterwards. And I started out doing a master's on, well, pensions. Uh, well, veterans politics, it turned out to be about pensions and it was very dull. And my supervisor sent me off to look at the papers of General Sir Ian Hamilton because he was um, heavily involved in the Metropolitan Branch of the British Legion. And whilst I was at the archives, I called up random folders and one of them was about the Gallipoli diary that he wrote. And at that point, I only knew that Gallipoli was uh, a disaster. But the file was full of letters from men who'd served under him saying, thank you for finally telling the truth about how glorious the, the campaign was. And I thought, what? This is this is kind of weird. And that took me into how um, how Gallipoli was written about after, after the fact and how it's been remembered. Um, and from there, I've looked at commemoration more, more generally. So it's because Gallipoli is so important for Australia, it's turned into um, a long-term interest in the memory of the war and its intersection with national life. So we're going to talk about the Chanak crisis. I've probably got that completely wrong in my pronunciation, um, which obviously has its roots deeply in the First World War. I wonder whether you could sort of give us a view of the post-war uh, environment in, this, uh, the, in which this crisis uh, takes place immediately after the Great War. Yes. So... Um... If you're pronouncing Chanak wrong, I am too. That's that's how I read it, how how I say it. Yeah, so um, the Chanak crisis blows up in your 1922. And um, there's a lot of continuity um, in, in political terms uh, in the post-war world in that Lloyd George was still prime minister. There's still the same prime minister of Australia, 
excuse me, uh, Billy Hughes is still Prime Minister in Australia. Uh, still the same New Zealand Prime Minister from Gallipoli days, uh, William Massey, and the most prominent Turkish leader by this point is Mustafa Kemal. So um, at the end of the First World War, the Ottoman Empire was broken up in uh, a really p- punitive peace settlement. Um, and uh, the rump, in the rump state, state of Turkey, Mustafa Kemal, who had made his name um, as a as a lieutenant general, why don't I not remember? Uh, he made his name at Gallipoli. That's embarrassing. Um, and but he had come to the fore. Um, and in terms of um, trying to overturn this punitive peace settlement and and leading what was the Turkish War of Independence. So um, I'm interested in Chanak for its echoes of of Gallipoli um, and. The, what we need to know more broadly about what's going on in this phase is that it's very unsettled. There's actually, we think of the war as finishing on the 11th of November 1918, but really that's true for the Western Front and Britain and France's experience of the war. And there's interesting work going on, um, most prominently by a man called Robert Kavath, who um arguing that we should think of the war in terms of a greater war because there's so much violence um, between 1918 and 1922-23 in Central and Eastern Europe, um, not least in the wake of the Russian Revolution. This Turkish War uh, of Independence is, um, is part of that. Um, there's a wider imperial crisis. And, of course, what um, British people don't tend to mention or get told is that the United Kingdom breaks apart in the First World War and there's war in in Ireland. Um, so it's a tremendously unstable period. So let's turn to some geography. Now, where is um, Chanak? What is Chanak? Where is it in the world where, where this crisis is focused? Well, I've given the clue in saying that there's continuity with, with Gallipoli. Chanak is uh, a town um, which is these days called Chanakali, um, and it is at the most narrow point of the Dardanelles Straits, on the Asiatic side of the Dardanelles Straits. The Dardanelles is the waterway which links the Aegean Sea, um, the Eastern Mediterranean, effectively, through to um, the Sea of Marmara and on to Constantinople. And from there, you have a waterway through to the Black Sea. Um, and opposite Chanak is Gallipoli, which was the subject of um, this massive campaign in, in 1915, which is the only part of the First World War where the Ottoman triumphed um, and was a, a humiliating defeat for um, an Anglo, um, Anglo-French force. Um, and the m- most famous part of it is that the Australians and New Zealanders as Anzacs made there base their national identity around the campaign. But anyway, I've gone a little away from geography. The geography is that Chanak is on the Dardanelles. So what was the crisis and what was its causes? Okay, so I've already mentioned that the Ottoman Empire was um, defeated and dismembered in the Treaty of Sèvres, which is the equivalent to the Treaty of Versailles for what happens to, to Germany after the First World um, and And so the Ottoman Empire is carved up into new states and parts of it are given to neighbouring states who had a claim on it and imperial mandates. Um, and so, for example, Syria is created 
Um, under uh, Mustafa Kemal's leadership, the Turkish army drove out the French, the Armenians, and Greek forces from uh, various parts of um, Turkey, from Anatolia and from European Turkey between 1919 and 1992. But by, by the autumn of 1922, it was still the fact that um, the erstwhile capital of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople, was occupied by British, French, Italian and Greek forces. And there's a small British garrison at the town of Chank. Now, the whereas Gallipoli in 1915 was a, a joint operation between the French and, and the British, the French weren't involved at all in the Channel Crisis of 92. The French had already agreed to withdraw from um, Turkey in October 1921, and they had recognised uh, Kamal's government. Um, another aspect of um, what was occurring in, in the lead-up to this crisis, and, and kind of the crucial part, is what the the Greeks were doing. Um, Greece wanted had territorial ambitions in in Turkey, and the Greek army had made considerable inroads um, in capturing Turkish territory. But um, the war had swung um, back in the uh, Turkish favour, and Turkish forces had driven the Greeks back through the through the summer of of nineteen twenty two, and. Um, the culmination of this was a def decisive defeat which led to the capture of Smyrna, which um, today is called Izmir, it's on the coast. There's absolutely terrible atrocities um, take place in, in Smyrna, something between 12,000 and 30,000 deaths. So whereas it, it had long been clear that a new diplomatic settlement was going to be required um, in regards to um, Turkey, but until Greece was defended, uh, defeated, um, they were going to have a big chunk of Turkey. But this defeat um, alters the calculations um, and puts um, Turkey on the on the front foot in terms of resolving its situation. Um, so uh, once Smyrna falls, the last part of the jigsaw really is the um, that there are British forces at Chanak. Um, at so the Turkish forces move northwards from Smyrna towards the neutral zone of the Dardanelles and, and look like they're going to threaten British forces. So to summarise, the, the, the causes of the crisis is that Mustafa Kemal is seeking to expel foreign influences and to overturn that punitive Treaty of Sevres. And um, meanwhile, the British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, um, is, is alarmed at the threat to British forces and says that he's concerned for the freedom of the, of the Straits, of the Dardanelles Straits. What had been going on in the background is that Lloyd George um, supported Greek ambitions in, in Turkey. He'd actually connived at it behind his foreign secretary's back. And so classic, dodgy Lloyd George ways, Frank. Um, and that part of his plan had completely failed. But all the same, he wasn't about to let go of British influence over the Dardanelles Straits uh, readily. So how did the Welsh wizard work his magic to resolve this uh, impending international problem? <laughs> Nothing that he did could be described as magic. Um, it was a complete failure and called out as such from the very start by the Daily Mail of all of all papers as well. So... Um, so Turkish forces look like they're threatening the the um, British forces at, at, 
at Chana. On the 15th of September 1922, the British cabinet decides that it will take steps to safeguard the neutral zone of the Straits against the Turkish menace. And so the next day, um, Lloyd George and the Secretary of the Colonies, um, Secretary, Secretary of State for the Colonies, Winston Churchill, this is another part of um, the Gallipoli story renewing itself. Um, Winston Churchill was the, it's, it's blamed as the architect for launching the Gallipoli campaign in the first place in 1915, and he's back in business um, when this Chanak crisis bubbles up. Uh, Churchill and Lloyd George send out a request to the Dominions, which is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa, and Newfoundland for support. And I think what they're trying to do thereby is really sabre-rattling um, at Kamal, making it like they're serious and they can call on this empire. And meanwhile, um, they said the British send um, their own reinforcements to the area and tensions ratchet up. Cabinet meetings, they start being very you know, frequent cabinet meetings discussing this up to and including three cabinet meetings in one day on the 28th September. And on that day, um, they order the cabinet orders the general um, Tim Harrington, who's now on the spot, um, to deliver an ultimatum to the Turks and a preemptive strike. Um, so, all there'd been a sort of uneasy standoff up to this point, but it looked like the the, the cabinet was gearing up to um, start using force. But one of the things that's going on during this crisis is, of course. The, the nature of communications technology at this point in time, there's a delay in telegrams being sent and deciphered and received and then um, and then uh, replied to. And already by the time that Harrington receives this instruction that he ought to follow as a as a um, commander in the in the British Army, um, there's already peace negotiations going on, trying to resolve the, the crisis. Um, and Harrington took advantage of the time delay in communications to basically ignore what he'd been told to do. Um, he ignores the direct order and he continued the negotiations. Um, and, well, in one sense, he got away with it. Everything was resolved The um, uh, and the cabinet was able to sort of say, yes, yes, no, you've done the right, right thing um, after he'd sort of, given them a bit more information. And essentially, by the 12th of October, an agreement was signed and all the tensions dissipate. So it they sort of marched the, marched the troops up to the top of the hill and marched them back down again. Um, it, it, no violence actually ensued in this part of, of the crisis and it was resolved through diplomacy. But it did look like Lloyd George was willing to risk renewed warfare with Turkey over the sake um, of the Dardanelles Straits. We've talked about, obviously, that this is rooted in uh, the Great War, but how does the, I suppose, the, the, the legacy that all these, these individual players carry around them shape the outcome of the crisis? Well, this is the bit that really got my interest. So I said that Lloyd George and Winston Churchill send out that call to the, the Dominions for reinforcements, and I think it was, it was a sort of, they were looking for a symbolic demonstration of support. What they did in sending that request out was they added a load of rhetoric to the request, which was really, really upped the ante. Um, so if I can read out the some of the texts that they sent, um, in explaining to these various Dominion um, prime ministers, 
what was at stake, they said, not only does the freedom of the straits from which such immense sacrifices were made in the war involve vital imperial and worldwide interests, but we cannot forget that there are 20,000 British and Anzac graves in the Gallipoli Peninsula and that it would be an abiding source of grief to the empire if these were to fall into the ruthless hands of the Kamalists. So this has been dubbed the Graves of Gallipoli um, argument. And in fact, E.M. Forster, the novelist of Howard's End um, fame, uh, criticised and lampooned this 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 stance but essentially they're they're going for the maximum emotional rhetorics like you can't you can't have these this sacred land defiled by the turks owning turkish land um it's um that's that's what they were objecting to in effect wasn't it anyway so they they, they pull the glippily memory lever and um the new zealanders respond to the max um New Zealanders go for it. Um, straight away, within 24 hours, the New Zealand offers a contingent and start recruiting. Um, and the numbers ratchet up. The the um, Governor General's Jet, Admiral Jelford, um keeps, um, I was going to say emailing, tel- sending telegrams to Churchill with updates on the numbers. In, within four days, 12,000 men had volunteered and 300 nurses. So the New Zealanders were ready. They they were up for the fight. In Australia, and and it and it was it's that glibly rhetoric that really riled them up. Now Australia, if anything, is even more passionate about its the sacred nature of of Gallipoli, um, and it could have gone a similar way in Australia. Um, judging by some of the initial headlines in the, in the newspapers, they they were ready to defend the sort of sacred land. But Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister, very quickly dampened it down, and on the nineteenth of September, says in Parliament, "Look, the situation's well in hand. We don't actually need to call anyone up at this point." What's going on behind the scenes is that he's absolutely livid with Churchill, because Churchill sent. Um, the telegram to the Dominion Prime Ministers, but he also did a press release, um, and so the news was in the in the papers before the Prime Ministers got to respond to it. So it's an absolute diplomatic um, disaster, and Billy Hughes is well within his rights to be so angry. Um, Hughes is also pretty suspicious of um, Lloyd George's um, ambitions and thought it was the next version of his weird obsession with Greek territorial claims, and he wasn't having a bar of it either. But anyway, the the upshot is that Australia does not does not mirror New Zealand in terms of being gung-ho for the fight. There's one other dominion that was involved in Gallipoli, and that's um, Newfoundland, um, but they're less, even le- much less emotionally invested in, in Gallipoli. They're... Um, it's Beaumont Hamill in the Battle of the Somme, which is important in Newfoundland's memory of, of the war. And so the response from Newfoundland is vague, um, loyal, but vague. And actually, in practical terms, their demobilisation of their military capacity had gone so far, there wasn't much they could do. Um, so they made positive noises. But in, in Canada, Canada had sent nurses to Gallipoli, but there's no emotional um, connection with Gallipoli. And the Canadian um, cabinet um, 
thought that they had limited strategic interests here in any case and um they 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 made no no promise of support um at all they were also they shared Hughes's anger at trying to at the press release which was embarrassing and sort of trying to bounce them into doing something so it's a um it's a polite no from canada and in south africa they're they're cooler still um there's no connection there um with Gallipoli and it takes 10 days for them to reply Jan Smuts is the prime minister um at this point in south africa and he writes back and says sorry I was off on a tour in an inaccessible part of the Union of South Africa, and seems like seems like the positions changed now, and you don't need our help. Yeah, forget about it. Um, the British never ever um, made a call on India. They were absolutely paranoid about causing unrest in India, and the Indian newspapers were really sharply critical of of what. Lloyd George was was up to in in any so there's a really mixed picture across the dominions and and differential responses to that memory of of the Great War, and in some ways the most surprising part is in is in Britain because well is it surprising I mean <clears throat> Britain's heavily involved in 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 Gallipoli but less emotionally invested in it, um, and there's just zero appetite um, in in some important quarters for getting involved. As I mentioned, the Daily Mail was especially critical. Um, it published an editorial on the 18th of September. So two two days after that um, call had gone out from Churchill and Lloyd George, the Daily Mail's editorial was stop this new war. And they were very clear that it was Lloyd George's issue and his mistake and, and he was very widely criticised. There was a bit of support from the Times. Uh, the Guardian wanted the League of Nations to handle it, but nobody bought into this great base of Gallipoli rhetoric. Um, so it's um, people are tired of war and they don't want any more. What, so what, what, what were the wider repercussions of this uh, crisis? What a good question. <laughs> um, so the resolution of the crisis opened the door to the revision of, of the Treaty of Sèvres at Lausanne in, in 1923. And that treaty settles Turkey's borders for all time. Um, it confirms um, the defeat of Greece's extravagant claims to Eastern Thrace. Part of the treaty was population exchange between Greece and Turkey, and there's absolutely terrible bloodletting in the process. And... Um, Hundreds of thousands of people affected by the price. Really terrible um, story. Um, Gallipoli itself is confirmed as neutral ground, and which will be administered by the Imperial War Graves Commission. And given that the, the freedom of the Straits, the Dardanelles Straits, is not immediately tidied up, but in the end, the diplomatic arrangements um, are uh, finalised in 1936 as the Treaty of Montreux. That leaves Turkey in control of the Straits and with the ability to close them in time of war. And the most recent time the Straits were closed was February 2022 um, in response to the war in, in Ukraine. So this waterway is amazingly important, has been since ancient times. It's the ancient Hellespont and it's vital to the, to the present day. So that's the international ramifications. Domestically, so Lloyd George is still Prime Minister, as I said at the beginning, but he's a kind of cuckoo in the nest. He's a Liberal Prime Minister and, and an essentially 
conservative government and that that there was terrible tensions within that coalition um which had been elected at the end of the end of the first world war in 1918 um and the tensions come to a boiling point because of the china crisis this is just the last straw for, for everyone and so on the 19th of october there was a meeting at the carlton club and the conservative party decided it would, would it would withdraw from the coalition that triggers a general election in november it caused significant losses for lloyd george's liberal faction and it meant the conservatives could form a government on their own with Bonalore as Prime Minister. The new intake of um, MPs to the backbenches who, who were elected in 1922 called themselves the 1922 Committee. And we hear a lot about them uh, from time to time, um, present day Tory machination. So this is the point where Lloyd George um, ceases to be Prime Minister and the Liberals um, that, you know, one of the two great parties of, of the 19th and early 20th century, this is the point where their political dominance comes to an end. And there are no Liberals in government um, until Nick Clegg um, and the coalition with with David Cameron. Um, and then, um, and a little tail end to it, Billy Hughes in Australia, um, in late January 1923, um, he he made belligerent threats against Turkey um, himself, um, well, in, on behalf of his government. But again, it was the last straw for his colleagues, and the Chanak crisis brought him down too. So, um, what I think is interesting, or one of the many things I think is interesting about the Chanak crisis, is it's a way of thinking about how and when wars end. So, if we talk about mobilisation at the start of a war. Mobilisation is more than just soldiers being called up. It's about industry being uh, gearing up for war. It's about cultural mobilisation, everybody agreeing that war is worthwhile and and putting all their efforts into it. And demobilisation is the same. It's not just about soldiers coming home. There's a, a historian called Adam Syke who's written about this. Um, and I think the Chanak crisis is a way of thinking about cultural demobilisation. Does anybody still think that war is the right thing to do? Is war thinkable to resolve a strategic issue? So the same strategic issue was at hand in 1915 as in 1922. And in 1915, clearly, war was thinkable and the right thing to do and the Gallipoli campaign ensued. In 1922, um, Turkey is fully uh, ready to use force to achieve all its goals no cultural or demobilisation in any sense there. New Zealand has not culturally demobilised because the, the minute somebody says Gallipoli is at risk, they're they're ready for it. But everywhere else, no, every, everybody's over um, using war as a, as a tool to, to achieve, achieve your goals. And so, um, as I was saying, whilst we mark the end of the First World War on the 11th of November, 1918, that only makes sense in terms of the, the Western Front. You've, um, I mentioned the, the violence, the wars, the revolutions that are ongoing across Europe and the crisis of empire more widely in 1922. And the Chanak crisis opens the door to the final resolution of, of so much of this. So back to Robert Gavassa's idea of a greater war, it ends in 1922, 1923, and it's, Chanak is the the final piece of the jigsaw that makes that possible. And so 
um, Chanak, if Chanak crisis is September, October 1922, December 1922, we see the formation of the Irish Free State and the formation of the Soviet Union. And 1923, we have the Treaty of Lausanne. And so this is the end of the First World War. And the final question in this uh, in this interview is, where can people learn more about your work and the Chanak crisis in particular? Well, the, this, the work specifically on the Chanak crisis is in the hands of reviewers number one and two um, and their their mercy. Um, with a bit of luck, they'll say, this is the most brilliant thing we've ever read. No revisions required. Publish it straight away. Um, so, well, we'll see. We'll see. I'm trying to place it in a journal as we speak. Um, and meanwhile, if you're interested more generally in the memory of Gallipoli and how it plays out in terms of national identity across an entire century, um, my book with Oxford University Press was published in 2015, and it is called very originally Gallipoli. And all books on Gallipoli must be called Gallipoli. Um, this is part of a MOEP series called Great Battles. Um, and it's the first part of it is a, a sort of three chapter summary of what happens during the campaign. And then it's the, the remainder of it is a cultural history with chapters on how Britain and Ireland remember Gallipoli, Australia, New Zealand, and Turkey. And um, I think it's actually a book about Britishness and the bonds of Britishness. Jenny, thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.